Welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning at Christ Church Santa Fe. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here with John and Sandy. And glad you're with us on this Resurrection Sunday to consider Peter, the restoration and the raising, as it were, of Peter. The Reverend Billy Graham shares an interesting anecdote about the 20th century physicist Albert Einstein. It goes something like this, Einstein was once traveling from Princeton, New Jersey on a train when the conductor came down the aisle punching the tickets of every passenger, make sure they had their tickets. When he came to Einstein, the physicist reached in his vest pocket and couldn't find his ticket. So he reached in his trouser pockets. It wasn't there. He looked in his briefcase but still couldn't find it. Then he looked in the seat beside him. It wasn't there either. The conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Einstein nodded appreciatively and the conductor continued down the aisle punching the tickets of the other customers. As he was ready to move to the next car, the conductor turned around and in horror saw the great physicist down on his hands and knees looking under his seat for the ticket. The conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, don't worry. I know who you are. It's no problem. Honestly, you don't need a ticket. I'm sure you bought one. In that moment, Einstein looked up at him immediately and said, young man, I too know who I am. The problem here is I don't know where I'm going. (laughs) It's a great story. I really hope it's true. Billy Graham told it, so yeah. I mean, that's the question of Resurrection Sunday. That's the question of Easter. Do you know where you are going? Do you know where you're going? In one sense, do you know where you're going when you die? Pastors like to ask that question, and it's important. As we come through Monday, Thursday, the Passover communion, Good Friday, the cross, the death of Christ, bearing the weight of God's justice and wrath for the sins of the world, as we come to the resurrection, that question of our mortality is important. Where are you going when you die? Isn't it more than just matter, motion, time, and chance? You're more than just a sophisticated flesh computer banging around the ether. Yes. But it's also an important question, where are you going for today? Because here we are, living, breathing souls, and and we don't just need help and we don't just need the future. We need now. We need grace and mercy and the the power of the living God risen and raising us up now. So do you know where you are going today is important. Do you know the way to get there? Do you know the way himself? Do you know the helper? Do you know that death has come to its end? As we look around the world, as we watch the news, as we grieve the brokenness of the world, even as we enjoy its beauty, as we see all of those same things in miniature swirling around our little hearts, do we know that death has been brought to its end and that the resurrection isn't merely some abstract concept that we've been discussing the last 2,000 years, but it's meaningful for you and me today in our souls, in our lives, in our relationships? Someone put it this way, the resurrection is not merely a one-off miracle, but it is the culmination of God's cosmic plan 
for redemption. It is the climax of the love of the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, for people, that he might reconcile them to himself for his glory and their joy. So we should ask, what difference does it make for me today to understand the hope of the resurrection? At the same time, with courage, we should also ask, where do I need today the power of the resurrection in my own life? We're taking a pause from the Gospel of Mark. We've been preaching through Mark's Gospel. We're going here to the Gospel according to John. This is the last chapter of John. Most would see it as John's prologue. And as far as the time frame to set the stage, Christ is risen, risen indeed, and he's been around for at least a week. He has made several appearances to his disciples, to his apostles, and yet like you and me, they are still, believe it, they are still struggling to get it. According to John's account, we're at least a week in here because on the next week of the Passover, Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room and that's where he hung out with Thomas with all of his doubts and questions. And yet Jesus has not yet ascended on high, so we're somewhere before the 40 days. After a week, before 40 days, and here in this text, we encounter seven disciples who have ostensibly decided that they're going to go back up to Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and, you know, why not go back to our old ways? Fishing. Now, John is identified in his gospel as the one that Jesus loved. This isn't John attempting to be arrogant. It's him making the point that he had an intimate relationship with Jesus, that they had deep affection for one another. And I I feel like if that's the case, and if you were, you know, making this stuff up, If you wanted to make for yourself a really good religion with a lot of self-help and people have to be really guilty all the time and work really hard and give you a lot of money, if you were going to do that, and if you were John who was close to Jesus, you'd probably want to cut out the bad parts. You'd want to cut out the really messy stuff. You know, you'd want a really heroic Jesus and really heroic followers. And yet that's not what John does at all. He gives us the story of Peter. Peter, for you... Peter, for me, we are right there with Peter because the nature of the word of God is not, you know, seven habits for your most highly effective religious life. It's your need and your brokenness and all you need is need and Jesus meets you in that need and he is enough. Jesus reveals all. Nothing is cut. Nothing is hidden. He reveals us. John tells us the purpose of his gospel at the end of chapter 20. He says, these things are written for you and for me on Resurrection Sunday that we might believe that Jesus, the Savior, is the Christ, God's Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, resurrection life, in his name. And so my aim this morning is, Simple, we've got a lot of regulars, we've got a lot of visitors. My aim is just to preach the good news. Just to preach good news, which the Bible refers to as the gospel, to us. Good news to real life broken people like me. And I was thinking about, you know, my life, my week, my ups and downs, how on any given week you can go from, you know, one side to the other. Uh, Earlier in this week I had, you know, Monday or so, Yeah, I had kind of this bout of, you know, feeling anxious and nervous, a bout of anxiety. It was weird. 
some circumstantial things, but I'm like, where did that come from? Lord, we can't do that because I need to get myself right for Easter Sunday. I need to be on my best behavior and my best terms. Well, there's good news for people who live normal lives, ebbing and flowing through the ups and downs of our brokenness. There is resurrection power for us. So we come to Peter. And I love Peter. And I love that Peter is in the Bible. What a gift of the grace of Jesus Christ to you and to me that Peter is in the Bible because Peter is all of us. So if you're here this morning and maybe you're, you're skeptical, you've got questions, you're doubting, you're not, you know, you're not sure if you believe this stuff, you don't believe this stuff, you've got drug here, you're doing a blessed family member a favor, if that's you, good. This is the place to be, to wrestle, to ask, not to be little church people with our sport coats and our, you know, short, weird deacon ties, walking around looking like we have it all together. This is the place to wrestle. If you're here and that's you, good. But if you're here and it's deeper than that, if you're scared, if you're sad, if you're angry, if you're suffering, if even now you can't get off your mind the one thing that is in your life that is broken and is hurting and you're, you're scared, you wonder, you know, can I, can I fix it? Can I fix it this time? I say if you're skeptical, good, but if that's you, great. You see, the problem of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's not most deeply intellectual. When I was doing my degree in philosophy, I learned quickly that on both sides of the question of the resurrection, there are the most logical, rational, reasonable, erudite answers that anyone could give. There is indeed, not only with the eyes of faith, but reason, which do not juxtapose good evidence that the man Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But the problem for most of us is more deeply emotional and spiritual. You see, Jesus knew or excuse me, Peter knew that Jesus rose. Peter knew that Jesus rose. He saw Jesus with his own eyes. Peter's question wasn't if Jesus rose, it was did Jesus rise for me? If he could really see me, if he could really know me, the betrayer, the denier, if he could really see that that's who I really am, no band-aids on the flesh wound, did he rise for me? And the flip side of that question, perhaps for Peter and you, says, is Jesus good? And how good is he? How good is this grace really? How far does it really extend to sinners? Because, you know, there's the tax collectors and, you know, the drunkards and the prostitutes, you know, the, the obvious and average sinners. But then there's Peter, who walked with him for three years, who said, I'll die for you. And in the very end, in the moment of courage, failed and said, no, actually, you're dead to me. This is the question of the resurrection. It's our question this Sunday. And so I want us to consider this provocative title, the resurrection of St. Peter. Because Peter wasn't more special than you and me. He is a dumpster fire. He's a mess. He's a wreck like you and me, okay? But he's St. Peter because all of those who put their trust in Jesus are saints. They are by grace through faith set apart and made the holy ones of God. And that's the scandal. That is the scandal of this radical gospel, the resurrection power and love of God. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Our predicament of death, 
our problem of restoration, and our path to resurrection. First of all, our predicament of death. Like Peter, for the good news to mean anything to us, we must come like Peter and we must admit with Peter that we too are betrayers. Sin isn't just, I did a bad thing, I said a naughty word. Tisk tisk, shame, shame. It is the foundational nature of our own hearts, this side of heaven, that we actually want to be our own kings and our own gods. Or we want Jesus on our terms. Imagine your life is a house. Jesus, you can have every room except for that one. Don't touch that one. Don't touch my job. Don't touch my kids. Don't touch whatever. That's us. And when confronted, just like Peter, what do we do? We're full of fear, fear of man, and we flee. Now, we should be somewhat surprised that Peter reacted in this way because, as you may or may not know, he was one of the original 12 disciples called apostles. He was a leader among leaders. Of the 12, he was in Jesus' inner circle of three with James and John. He is known for being bold and faithful. Jesus called Peter the rock, right? That's what Petros means, the rock. And yet consistently, Peter, the very religious person, the Bible answer man, Peter, is consistently overconfident. So you'll recall that one story where he goes to Jesus and, you know, Jesus, we shouldn't be like the Jews. They say to forgive three times. We'll be extra spiritual. Forgive seven times. And you can just see Jesus patting Peter on the head. Peter, Peter, Peter. It's not seven times. It's 70 times seven. And of course, there's that story where Jesus is letting his disciples know to their shock and awe that he is going to die. The Messiah is going to the cross. And Peter brazenly stands before them all and says, never, Lord, you will never die. I, Peter, the fisherman, will protect you. And Jesus rebukes him in the strongest possible terms. Get behind me, Satan. I have to go and die so that I can rise for all of you. This is the one then in our text who says, still leading, I'm going fishing. Going back to my trade. You can almost feel Peter saying, I tried. Man, that was a crazy couple years, wasn't it, guys? Man, that was three years. It's pretty intense. Wow. And I, I think I'm done. I think because of what I've done, I'm done. Jesus is risen, I, he forgives me, but, you know, my rabbi, eh, I don't know. My calling, doubt it. So he goes back to the thing he thinks he can control. Not by faith being a fisher of men, but fishing. In this sense, we, we find Peter in our text as a little bit of the walking dead. Many of us can relate to this. Living, but not really living. Living, but feeling deeply defeated. Living, but living deeply with the reality of death upon him. Now, it should be my burden of proof to explain why I would make such a strong statement. Indeed, most of our Bibles have as a, you know, as a note, Peter's restoration, not Peter's resurrection. So why? would Peter find himself unrestorable, as it were, from his point of view, basically dead? We have to understand two things. The first is the nature of the denial. 
Feel the weight of this. Imagine, and some of you don't need to imagine, that you have been betrayed by your closest friend. Not once, not twice, three times. And not only that, but Peter betrays Jesus to these little girls who stand at the door of the temple, to servants who stand around the fire. This is Peter who said he would die for Jesus, who just hours earlier picked up his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus, declaring his loyalty. And what's worse is that his denial is to save himself. I never noticed this before in the Gospels, but at least two of the Gospels tell us that Peter called down curses upon himself. I swear I don't know that man. And in the context of Judaism, and in the context of the ancient Near East at the time, this draws to mind the idea of the covenant. Ancient contracts. Do this and you will live. Blessings. Do it not and you will die. Cursings. We take an animal, we chop it in half, blood on the ground, we walk through, we shake hands. It is as if Peter is saying of Jesus, he is so dead to me, he is so denied that I would be cursed, I would be torn to shreds if I knew that man. One commentator puts it this way. It's important to hear. As we consider Peter's denial, his calling down of curses upon his own head, it should strike us that this is not a story of good and bad guys. And that the line between Peter and Judas is very thin here. One denies the Lord for money, the other for self-preservation and fear, but the selling out of the Son of God carries similar weight. But it's worse than that. It's worse than just the weight of his denial. We have to understand a bit about rabbi culture. When a rabbi finally chose a student to follow them, they would say these words, Come and follow me. And if you, the student, left everything to go with your rabbi to go and follow them, you were declaring heart, mind, soul, and strength, total loyalty, total submission. And so for the Jews of this day, I don't even know what to compare it to. To deny the rabbi that you have followed for three years is the worst imaginable treachery. And not once, but three times. So Peter can't fall back on, oops, it was a mistake. I'm sorry, it was an accident. We see here the depths of his sin, cowardice. In his culture, Peter, Peter would have been shamed to the nth degree, not seen as a true Jew, not worthy, not even a man. Death. And there were no second chances. You deny your rabbi once, you don't get a second chance. You do it three times, and you are done. And so like the prodigal son we heard about in our confession of faith, you can imagine Peter going, all right, I've seen Jesus a couple times. He's been in the upper room. He was there where he interacted with Thomas. I've kind of been Jesus adjacent. He's been nice to me. I know he loves me, but I'm, I think I'll just be a slave, okay? <laughs> That's fine. Not a son, you know, not, not a true follower of the rabbi, not one with the calling the rock, I'm a failure. That ship has sailed. He's basically dead. And yet notice that just then, 
when Peter once again is a leader of these seven who are seemingly over it and back to fishing, it is just then that Jesus shows up. Because Jesus has more work to do. This first predicament of our death brings us to our problem of restoration. We see this in the way that Peter reacts. Commentators agree that this is what's going on. Peter sees Jesus. He's full of brokenness. He's full of hope. He's a mixture of all of it, but he's going to show Jesus that he, he's going to make things right. Peter is going to prove himself to Jesus. He's failed. He's convicted of sin, and he does what so many of us do. I'm going to beat myself up now. Be a good penitente. I'm going to show God. You know, God, you come 70% of the way, but let me do my 30. I'm going to prove it to you. Jesus, do you see me? Do you see that I'm trying? Do you see that I care? It's clear that this is the case because what Peter does is he, he basically puts on a show. As one scholar puts it, Peter's throwing himself into the water shows us a theatrics only matched by the prophet Jonah. He's stripped down because he's been fishing all night. He's shirtless, so he puts a cloak on himself. You do not jump into the water with a cloak on. You drown. But Peter's going to show Jesus his devotion. Oh, and by the way, you don't jump into the water when you're in a boat on a sea and you're only 100 yards out. You really don't need to do that. It's 100 yards. These are really strong guys. But there goes Peter, still dealing with his own self-righteousness. You see, it looks a little bit spiritual. It looks a little bit holy. But really, at the end of the day, this is not humility. It's pride. It's pride that strikes at the vital heart of the gospel. To the degree that Peter is trying to show Jesus, Jesus, I'm really sorry, and I'm going to make it right so you love me again. I've got to do penance, he seems to think. Eleven out of the twelve disciples ran away when Jesus was arrested. But one commentator says it this way, Peter's flight was the worst. Not because of his denial, but because of his propensity to religious self-righteousness. Peter's was worst because he had been, in some ways, the most prideful. I'll never forsake you. Even in his jumping into the water, even there where there's hope and trust mixed with performance and self-righteousness, Peter has a misguided view of himself, as we so often do. We do the same. When the word leads us to conviction, what do I do all the time? I punish myself. It's really hard to believe that I really am that loved and that forgiven right then and there. Because I'm not Christ, I'm not God, the person I'm offended isn't God, and that's not what it feels like. But feelings are nothing in comparison to the reality of the resurrection. And so in the midst of all this, Jesus already knows. He already sees Peter. He knows exactly what Peter needs. And here we see our path to resurrection. Peter, soaking wet with his cloak on, hauling in the fish, 
before he can even get the words out of his mouth, before he can even dare to hope that fully known, fully exposed, guilty and ashamed, he might be loved, Jesus is already moving toward him. That's the point of these questions. Jesus isn't saying by these questions, all right, Peter, let's see if you really care. I'm going to ask you three times because I didn't hear you the first time. I've been cooking breakfast, and so my, you know, my right ear is not good. The point of the questions themselves are a move of Jesus toward Peter. There were three denials, and now there are three questions that restore And they don't just restore part of the way. They restore the entire way. We see this clearly in the text. Jesus isn't saying, Peter, do you love me? Okay, good, thanks. You get to be a slave in my house. I guess I'll keep you around. When Peter responds to the grace of the question, by Lord, you know everything, Jesus says, I'm restoring your calling. I'm restoring your life. I'm restoring you being the rock. Everything that was lost, everything you lost, By making me dead, I died so that I could raise up in you once again. Here's what this means for us. If there is hope for Peter, who did the worst imaginable thing to Jesus that you could do with your mouth and your heart, if there is hope for Peter, then there is hope for you and me. And I want you to see the beauty of the gospel here because Jesus doesn't only deal with Peter in like the big sin of the denial. Peter also deals with Jesus in the subtlety of his religious self-righteousness and pride. I think uh, Tim Keller's pastor up in New York, sums this up beautifully for us. When my own personal grasp of the gospel was very weak, my self-view swung wildly between two poles. When I was performing up to my standards in academic work, professional achievement, relationships, jumping out of the boat to swim to shore, doesn't say that, but I felt confident but not humble. I was likely to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. When I was not living up to standards, I felt humble but not confident. I felt like a failure, a denier. I discovered, however, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, contained the resources to build a unique identity, to deal with both issues of sin. In Christ, I could know I was accepted by grace, not only despite my flaws, but because By his mercy, I was drawn to admit them. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. Indeed, he rose and he lives for me. This then leads to the deep humility and confidence that we need at the same time for our denial and for our pride. It undermines both our sniveling and our swaggering. This is how Jesus deals with Peter. And family, this is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Because he is risen and because we are his, we are risen. And because he is risen, we are forgiven. And because he is risen, deniers and betrayers are called once again beloved sons. And because he is risen, those who do not deserve it are brought into what they do not deserve and given the fullness of all his benefits, his riches, his love, and his mercy. Because he is risen, we not only know who we are, but as we follow the one who says, come follow me, we know where we are going. Let's pray.
Hmm. Father in heaven, glory be to your name. Thank you, Jesus, that you put death itself to death so that as we read, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we know there are consequences to our actions, of course, but ultimately, if our trust is in you, we are not condemned. And thank you, Jesus, that it is not by works, it is not by a display of our piety. It is not by a a penitent display to show you how much we, we love you and how beautiful it is, Lord, that when we're doing that, like the prodigal son, when we're far off, when we're far off contemplating how we're gonna make it right, contemplating what we might deserve, wondering if we can be taken back in as even a servant or slave, you are already running toward us. You are already running toward us to put your robe of righteousness upon us, to kill the fattened calf, to throw a feast. And that's what we come to when we come to this table. We come to a place where we walk here without anything in our hands. It is a living picture of all we need is need. We come by faith and you provide, just like you did on the beach for those seven. You have made the meal to show your generosity and your hospitality and your mercy to those who are hungry. So I pray, Lord, we would come with trust in you, that you would raise, that you would restore. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.